This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. morning, so um, I made sure to uh, uh, perform my um, individual uh, morning service after breakfast, and um, uh, I was impressed again how the physicality of our practice reverberates through the body-mind, through and out again, and how, how critically important it is to uh, actually do the practice with one's body. I think I've uh, I said before how when I encountered um, Buddha Dharma, first time, I was maybe 14, and um, I, I was very excited, but all, all I did, all I knew to do was read. So for perhaps a couple of years, all I did was read. And then um, By the time I was in, in my senior year in high school, I was about as fed up with Buddhism as I had been with Christianity. So, <laughs> I mean, there's something amiss here. Uh, so I, I went to my favorite bookstore, East West Books in Menlo Park, which at the time was sort of a magnet for all sorts of nutsy people. And uh, uh, sections of the bookstore were devoted to witchcraft and uh, the human aura and Gurdjieff. And I was most interested in the Buddhist section, so I, uh, I uh, maybe I, I also said I, I was uh, pretty suspicious of um, Zen. I thought, I, I don't know who those Zen people are. I think there's something weird about them. Uh, but uh, my uh, friend, who was the proprietor, uh, he said, uh, well, you know, you ought to, you know, don't, don't rule it out so quickly. You know, investigate it a little bit. And uh, he and his wife, um, Bill, Bill Sharfman and his wife, Virginia, they, they knew Suzuki Roshi, and uh, so that was kind of their connection. So I, I said, well, all right, and I, I chose a book uh, from the shelf, uh, something like, I think it was uh, D.T. Suzuki, 
Zen and Japanese culture. I thought, well, maybe this is it. And Bill said, uh, no, not, not that one. And at that time, uh, Three Pillars of Zen was brand new. And he said, try that one. So I thought, oh, okay. And um, I took it back to my dormitory. And I think I read almost all of it in one afternoon. And uh, I was even more excited about Buddhism than I had been the first time. So. But um, so so that day I, I uh, or the next day I started uh, doing zazen. I thought according to the instructions in the back of that book. And um, that uh, was the beginning, you might say, or one of the beginnings of a long road. And. Um, it was a long time before I um, encountered the tradition of the self-fulfilling samadhi. Cheryl, would you invite that gentleman to sit uh, in here with us if he wishes? Can't quite see him. saying yesterday, um, those, those uh, the Chinese characters, Ji, Ju, and Yu, Ji is uh, oneself, <coughs> it sounds a lot worse than it is, she's actually okay. And Ju uh, is uh, to receive, receive and Yu is to employ. And of course, Sanmai is just the Chinese pronunciation of the Sanskrit Samadhi. So this is a um, This is the most profound approach to Buddha Dharma I have ever encountered. And one of the characteristics of Zen is um, to kind of uh, leave aside some of the um, equipment, both intellectual and, and otherwise, that uh, the Buddha Dharma has, has acquired over the 
many centuries. And uh, you could say There's a certain way of thinking about uh, enlightenment where uh, enlightenment becomes a kind of equipment. And in fact, a kind of uh, baggage. description of the approach to enlightenment is that it takes you know like three immeasurable kalpas to arrive at Buddha's awakening and that uh, path is uh, um, kind of uh, described as so long that it's a wonder anyone would ever bother. And another point of view is that Shakyamuni Buddha discovered something uh, intimate and intrinsic to every being. And this uh, Intrinsic heart is uh, beating in each of us. And already illuminating our path throughout birth and death. And that uh, enlightenment is not just the end of the path, but the path itself. And as some tell the tale, that was actually what Shakyamuni uh, Buddha discovered. In his own uh, long search sorting through the various um, spiritual paths that were uh, talked about in his day, including some highly structured approaches to meditation.
And after all, it is said that when he awoke, holding the morning star, he said, how remarkable every sentient being embodies the wisdom and virtue of awakening. They're just a little confused about it. But as I said the other day, he said, well, no one's going to believe me, so I'm not even going to bother to say anything about it. And uh, luckily, some people and uh, divine <laughs> beings got after him and said, well, oh, come on, you need to tell us because things aren't, things aren't looking so good for us sentient beings. We need some good news. Now, in some ways, it's easier to think that there's a tremendously long path and at the end there's a big payoff. And uh, our friend, um, Menzan Suiho, says, speaking from the 18th century, in the last several hundred years, a great many have adhered to this attitude, <coughs> both in China and Japan. All have mistaken a broken piece of tile for gold, a fisheye for a jewel, because they do not yet clearly understand the essence of the great Dharma. The true Zazen, which has been transmitted by the Buddhas and ancestors, is the Tathagata's self-fulfilling samadhi. It is the state in which the body and mind of perfect nirvana always abides peacefully. In the Lotus Sutra, the Tathagata's Zazen is called the Samadhi of Infinite Meanings. We said this yesterday. The Sovereign Samadhi, the Precious Mirror Samadhi, and so on. And this is what Dogen, Zenji, encountered when he went to Japan, this uh, remarkable teaching, uh, which came to him after he was, as you know, already a lineage holder in Linji Chan, or Rinzai Zen. And after he returned to Japan, Menzan says, he advocated this samadhi, calling it Body, mind, fall away, away, fall, body, mind. Uh, this is another word for 
Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Unexcelled, complete awakening. This transcends the ranks of ordinary folks. The old wisdom school, the ten stages of the bodhisattvas, and so on. It is said, directly enter into the stage of the Tathagata. Just take the essence. Do not worry about trifling things. The practice of the six paramitas of the bodhisattva and in fact all of the 84,000 dharma gates are without exception included in self-fulfilling samadhi. This is why it is said, as soon as you clarify Tathagata Zen, the six perfections and all other practices are complete. It is also said in another sutra, when you sit in the upright posture, aware of this reality, all evil is like frost or a drop of dew. Settling into this samadhi, all evil will disappear as promptly as frost or a drop of dew disappears under the sun. Elsewhere it says, being aware of reality, there is neither subject nor object, and we are immediately released from the karma of the hell of incessant suffering. When you sit in this samadhi, you will enter directly into the realm of the Tathagata. Therefore, this samadhi is endowed with the limitless virtue of the roots of goodness and the limitless obstructions of one's evil deeds caused by evil karma will disappear without a trace. As this samadhi truly is incomparable, the great dharma wheel and the practice of going beyond Buddhahood, it is beyond words and discriminating thoughts. So I, I don't know if people realized that this was our practice. So I'm, I'm taking this opportunity to emphasize that. Maybe, you know, you all knew this already. Um, a place like this, there's always a certain danger the one is just preaching to the choir, as the uh, saying goes. But um, we, we did go to the trouble of uh, trying to assemble a space for retreat. So I feel like we might as well use it to uh, convey 
the best possible news. I, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, for many people, The, the immediate challenge is it's extremely difficult for uh, embodied beings such as we are uh, to understand being still without striving for anything. This is, this is for the words, okay, maybe that's straightforward enough, but Encountering the uh, tendency, the restlessness of our body-mind, it's very difficult to accept that there is a samadhi present at all times. It's, it's kind of so challenging that I, I must admit that uh, just sitting uh, together in, here in Arzendo, it does sometimes feel like work, doesn't it? So, in a way, it is work, but The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are doing the work for us as we sit in stillness. It is the radiance of their labor that uh, fills us. Yesterday I was kind of sick, so uh, today when, when I was sitting, I, uh, I noticed I was perspiring as though I were doing some kind of work. was okay to let the sweat percolate. Let uh, Buddha wisdom radiate without trying to touch says, now I will explain in detail the way to clarify and rely on this samadhi. This is done simply by not clouding the light of your own self. When the light of self is clear, 
you follow you fall neither into dullness nor distraction. Master Sangsan, the third Chan ancestor, says, When the cloudless light illuminates itself, there is no need for mental struggle. There is no waste of energy. This is the vital point of the practice and verification of this samadhi. The cloudless light illuminates itself means the light of the self shines brightly. Not to engage in mental struggle means not to add the illusory mind's discrimination to the reality. When you engage in mental struggle, the light becomes illusory mind and brightness can seem to be darkness. If you do not struggle, the darkness itself becomes the self-illumination. This is similar to the light of a jewel illuminating the jewel itself. For example, it is like the light of the sun or the moon illuminating everything, mountains and rivers, human beings and dogs, etc., equally, without differentiation or evaluation. Also, a mirror reflects everything without bothering to discriminate. In this self-fulfilling samadhi, just keep the light of the self unclouded without being concerned with discriminating of objects. This is the meaning of Chantong Hongzhi's expression in his poem, The Acupuncture Needle of Zazen. The essential function of Buddhas and the functioning essence of ancestors, knowing without touching things, illuminating without facing objects. When you practice and learn the reality of Zazen thoroughly, the frozen blockage of illusory mind will naturally melt away. If you think that you have cut off illusory mind, instead of simply clarifying how illusory mind melts, then illusory mind will come up again, as though you had cut the stem of a blade of grass or the trunk of a tree and left the root alive. This is quite natural. It's uh, probably uh, almost enough instruction. I don't know uh, how you 
feel about hearing that that's what's happening right now. Maybe uh, maybe you're um, uh, skeptical. are gathering <coughs> and maybe you're, you're not quite ready yet to uh, recognize doubts as the light of the self the illumination of self fulfilling samadhi. From that point of view, doubts have no power. This is the unfolding of our practice, and we've um, invited each other to gather here uh, to bear witness. You know, for a little while, pretty soon it'll be time for another of Cheryl's delicious lunches and and then next thing you know it'll be Saturday and then it'll be Sunday and we all go home those of us who don't live here that is so it's not very much time this morning um, I, I confess a part of my bad temper was there were only three of us in the Zendo period started at 6.30 and I was, I was quite discouraged, I must admit. It's not, not easy to make an event like this happen. When it does happen, to take advantage of it is pretty important. Jensan, this, uh, this text appears in the book Heart of Zen. I found it. Oh, you did? Oh. It took me a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh -huh. I read a lot of other, I mean, a lot of other versions of uh -huh. it. Okay, thank you.
you have any questions this morning? Visceral, not so much visual, but it has that same kind of light. Yeah. Um, one way to look at compassion is as an, another natural function. Yeah. And when whatever that is melts, then compassion is freed also. So I realize. Uh, this particular uh, expression of teaching relies heavily on wisdom. But as we know, there is no wisdom without compassion, and vice versa. So, practicing Buddha Dharma frees the whole body-mind to resonate with suffering beings which is well, uh, it's kind of daunting sometimes. I can help. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. There's so much, you know, especially lately. And yet, it's like the body-mind is designed to resonate with other beings in their joy and also in their misery. There's no point in trying to get away from that, I don't think. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I wonder about the difference in approaches like you were describing. Um, and it seems like um, the Tibetan approach is kind of, it seems like the polar opposite of Zen to me in a way because they are seemingly trying to condense that however many kalpas long process into at least they say this lifetime. They say. Um, mm -hmm. And there's so many practices and um, <coughs> rituals and everything for purification and for um, developing different qualities and removing obstructions and everything. Right. And, um, and yet <laughs> when I read or hear the teachings from Tibetan teachers or Zen teachers, they seem kind of comparable <laughs> and maybe I don't yes. quite have enough uh, understanding to tell the difference, but um, I just sort of wonder like, well, how can these approaches be so vastly different and yet they right. seem to end up kind of the same? <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, Although there is a tremendous, as you say, cornucopia of practices uh, from you know, looking at the world of Buddha Dharma as a whole, uh, one hears that it amuses the Tibetans when they see Westerners pursuing 
like like initiation after initiation, practice after practice, as though they don't realize that only in one of those, they say, just do chin raising meditation. You will, you will enter and achieve the path that way. But there, it's so tempting to see, well, there's this and this one, that one's great, and I might like that one better, and etc. But it's not really necessary. And of course, the great Trungpa Rinpoche said, well, you know, essentially, uh, Zen is Tantra with its clothes off. That's all. And it's like, yeah, that's why. When you were talking about work, the work dressing, it reminded me of in yoga they always talking about stiram and sukha. So like each pole should have steadiness Both. and ease. Uh-huh. Um, how would that relate that concept to sort of sitting? <laughs> well, um, I think I, I would say that if we are uh, positioned or arranged optimally, then stira and sukha are both present. And it would be important not to like latch on to one or the other, thinking that, well, now I know what that is, you know, so I need more sukha or more stira, as if I knew what that was, but the body already knows. And uh, if you're doing asanas, sometimes it's helpful that the teacher will come and say, okay, this would be a little more optimal if you did this. But the balance is inherent already. And um, this, uh, the self-fulfilling samadhi expresses both. So, uh, as I said before, uh, pain can turn toxic. So, if one is on retreat and is, you know, making oneself miserable by our approach, our, our, our physical approach to retreat practice, then that's, then something's wrong. And we need to step back and say, okay, how can we approach this in a way that is less violent? And uh, sometimes that gets obscured, especially in Zen, you know? Especially young males. You know, I played football in high school, and by God, I know how to do this. And um, you know, the result is um, not inspiring. That speak to your question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well. As uh, Blessed Paul says, the hour is late, the night is far advanced. So let's keep that in mind. Thank you very much.